The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. As we continue our worship, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. And in our day of modern technology, at first glance, we're going to look at a text that may look out of sync. It may look outdated to some. There's, there's not going to be any political correctness or, or wokeness you detect as we're reading this passage. Sometimes I'll begin a sermon with a story or I'll begin a, with a thought-provoking question to try to get your attention, but I think this text does that for itself, and I think you'll see what I mean. It's going to provoke its own questions for you. Exodus chapter 21 In verse 1, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is God speaking to Moses about Israel. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's. And he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. That was a long tool with a a point on the end. And he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights." And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Amen. And all God's people said, huh? (laughs) Some of you have never heard a a message on a passage like this. and, And frankly, a lot of churches and pastors would never touch a passage like this. Many of them are just picking each week the topics that kind of fit with their vision for their church. But when you preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, you can't avoid passages like this. There's the seeker-friendly model that wants to avoid anything that might offend and then pick what it deems most profitable. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. And he's talking about the Old Testament. All of it rebukes and corrects and trains in righteousness to equip us, Paul says. And so as we come to this passage, we need to ask, how does this text do that? Even though this may not be your favorite passage or or fun or just a a feel-good sort of topic, I'm called to be faithful to preach the word. Paul said in Acts 20, 27, he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. And we can't shrink back either. This is part of scripture to equip us. And as we see, this is actually a scripture that can equip us to answer critics who say that scripture is 
pro-slavery. You'll, you'll hear that in the world if you haven't already. This is a passage that actually trains us in righteous thinking about how women should be treated with kindness and even as daughters, as we'll see. This is a passage that would correct any Christian who would use the Bible to justify using, abusing, misusing any people. We're going to see that in this study, any human beings. This is a passage that rebukes all human trafficking and even rebukes what often comes to our mind when we hear this term slave. This is profitable for us to teach slavery biblically. This is also useful for apologetics. This isn't an embarrassment. And actually, when you dig into this, this can be an encouragement as it was for me studying it this past week. So we're not picking and choosing what we think is relevant, but this next section of Exodus is very relevant. It's relevant to those who say, how can you believe Old Testament morality and sexuality when we have these Old Testament passages about slavery and polygamy? That's an objection in the world. The next section we're going to see is about the death penalty and abortion. Is that a relevant topic in our world today, or there's the next section after that is going to be on what, what's called social justice in the ESV heading, and restitution versus the concept of reparations. It's going to talk in this section about dealing with debt, how to get out of debt. It's going to talk about dealing with premarital sex. Chapter 23 is going to talk about faith healing. It's going to talk about the land of Palestine that's in dispute today and the history of that It's going to talk about God's solution to oppression or racism. Any of that sound like anything our world needs? The Bible is very contemporary, and it's it's also very controversial, and there are passages that can be very confusing. Like, does God want us here to sell our kids? Is he encouraging? Is he expecting us to buy wives for our sons today? Does he support, does he endorse slavery like like we think about in our history? Or taking another wife in verse 10. And some people might think Moses is a sexist, chauvinist, misogynist, patriarchalist. There's probably some other terms you could throw in there too who's just putting down women as inferior, but that is not the case. And this is not the word of a sinful man. And actually, when you study this, this is radically different than other ancient writings about these things on slaves and women, because this is actually the word of God who redeems those situations, who speaks of those situations that existed in ancient times and redeems. And if you weren't here last week with the introduction of God's law, you you may want to listen to that because we're not old covenant Israelites in this legal system with some of these ancient practices, but there are principles for us here of love from God and love for God and how to love neighbors in less fortunate situations. And so as we look at this, let me pray for God's help Our Father, we ask that you would help us now, help me as we look at your word to speak what would be 
helpful and to not speak anything that would not be helpful. And I pray that your spirit would help us even to hear in ways beyond what I can say and that you would, for each of us, move our hearts towards how we might apply caring for people in difficult situations which are all around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What I want us to consider from this passage is this passage condemns, this chapter condemns American slavery. This chapter also cares for all people when you understand it rightly, and it calls us to care for all people. And this concept in this passage also is going to point us to redemption, point us in this world in which it was written to the Messiah who would come, who would be an answer to many of the struggles of people. And that last point will continue to next week. But if it's uncomfortable to think of slavery in our nation's past, we need to start thinking about this nation's past, Israel's past. So if you turn back to Genesis 47, this is Part of their historical context, just a few chapters earlier, Genesis 47, Israel moved to Egypt. Remember, it was a desperate time. And so when Exodus 21 talks about people being bought, it has a a different connotation today than what they would have known from their history. They would have heard that language in light of their family history in a famine as they feared starving to death. Genesis forty-seven twelve, And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. Verse 18, And when that year was ended, they, this is the Egyptians, came to him, as Joseph, the following year, and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? By us. So here's the statement. By us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh or slaves to Pharaoh. Those are the same words from Exodus 21. Servant or slaves and to be bought. And they're saying, by us. The Egyptians would slave the next six years of famine to save their lives and to help rebuild a better life after. That's the historical context of these words that are used in Exodus 21. And and in their story of their history, in verse 23, Joseph buys them and provides for them seed to work in a way that would benefit all parties there in Egypt. And the end of verse 24 says he provided food for their little ones as well so they wouldn't lose them or their lives, which is what they feared. And so in return, verse 25, and they said, again, these are the Egyptians to Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants or slaves to Pharaoh. And then verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful. So this is their story as they came there. This is what they knew. And when there was a godly master like Joseph in place, buying them to serve him saved many lives. That's the backdrop to Exodus 21. Rather than die, a desperate or destitute person could sell himself, in this case, to serve six years. That was also the limit in Israel. Rather than give up their little ones or their lives, they could work in a short-term bond slave 
contract where food and provisions would be given and resources to help them gain possessions and a new lease on life. And so Leviticus 25, 35 fills this out. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him and he shall live with you. It says, verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you. So, so there it is. He's poor and so he sells himself to you. That's why he would be bought. Notice, you shall not make him serve as a slave. Or one translation says, you don't treat him as a slave. He shall be to you as a hired worker. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. So they were in a situation where people might sell themselves, but he says, don't rule over them like a slave or treat them harshly like the, like the pagans do. Respect him like an employee, like any other worker. And so that is, we go back to Exodus 21. Don't think of movie slave markets where Africans were bought by masters. Think of Jews selling themselves and their services voluntarily and temporarily for necessities. It would be six years or less. It was not a lifetime. And it was a lifeline if they were poor and their life was on the line. And so this is not about chained blacks stolen from their homeland or chattel slavery in our land. This is not involuntary subjugation. This is indentured servitude or bonded labor in a contract. Maybe the closest U.S. analogy we have today, and it doesn't fit exactly, but would be a volunteer army. Where when you sign up for the army to serve, you are committing to X amount of years to serve. And they're going to provide food and housing and clothing. But there's a sense in which they, they own you now for those years. At least that's what they tell you in, in boot camp. They're drilling that into you. Your, your will is subservient to them. You can't just do whatever you want now. And this is part of what you signed up for. And the difference would be our army pays also at the same time so that you can save. But it seems some of the Hebrews also did that with their slaves in that same chapter, Leviticus twenty-five forty-eight. It says, after someone is sold, he may be redeemed. So it may not be six years. Someone could redeem or could pay for that contract. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him. That means to, to pay to buy him back. Or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. The fact that it says if he grows rich uh, implies that at least in some cases... They were being paid. Six years was the max, but they could sometimes make money to buy themselves out if they didn't have a family member who could buy them out sooner before those six years were up. And so Exodus 21 is a path to redemption. When that situation is happening, here is how it needs to be done rightly. And it could be a path to riches or at least a path to a renewed livelihood. We need to understand this is not like the 17th century slave trade at all. Jesse Johnson, who was an old classmate of mine, wrote a dissertation on this. He wrote this as part of it, quote, in my first semester at seminary, I came across a Doug Wilson poem, which implied 
that the American institution of slavery was good and noble. Even virtue was the word he used. Later, I came across another work by Wilson, this one co-authored by Steve Wilkins, Southern Slavery as It Was, a Thorough Defense of Christians Who Were Slave Owners. He says, I found many other Christians who believed slave owners in the South who claimed the name of Christ and yet profited from the buying and selling of human beings could do so with a clean conscience before God. That's not right. And we're going to see that here in this text. Spurgeon in the 1800s sarcastically rebuked the master in America who would tell his slaves that they ought to be feeling very grateful for being his slaves, for God Almighty made them on purpose that they might enjoy the rare privilege of being cowhided by a Christian master. We need to understand American slavery is clearly condemned by the Bible. We need to be able to say that without equivocation or qualification. The Bible does not condone or allow American slavery. It doesn't regulate it. It absolutely forbids it. Exodus 21, we're going to see, should have stopped all transatlantic slave ships. It should have stopped all whites from owning blacks here in this land. Exodus 21 actually addresses the capture or the kidnapping of Africans or any people, stealing people and slave trading. Look at Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him, so someone who had been stolen or sold in that way, shall be put to death. So anyone involved in the selling or stealing of men, which is how the transatlantic African slave trade began, must be killed. That is God's moral judgment. If you were found to own a slave that had come from that scenario and background, God's law said, you must die too. This is God's judgment on that. And this calls for more than the abolition of American slave masters. It actually calls for their execution, not just the abolition of what they were doing. And we think, well, there were good Christians. There were good masters. God's good law says, even so, they deserve to die. That kind of system in Americans, America's history has the most severe words of penalty from God's law. So in chapter 22, if you were to steal property, you had to pay back a sheep or an oxen fourfold or fivefold. But if you were to steal a person, you paid with your life. It's not better if he was born on your plantation so you didn't kidnap him or buy him. I would say it's actually worse and The perpetuation of verse 16 for generations while claiming biblical justification is worst of all. God thundered and wrote this on stone. You shall not steal. And now he's explaining an example of what you shall not steal looks like right after the Ten Commandments. Here's what in the 1640s, the Westminster Larger Catechism said that the Eighth Commandment forgives any stealing of, of people. First Timothy 1.10, it quotes, And receiving any that is stolen, or any injustice and oppression, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, which would be like wages for his work, or of enriching ourselves in the process. And then they quote James 5, verse 4. And yet men preaching God's law and professing that catechism violated 
all of that for 200 plus years. That's not something we need to excuse. We need to recognize that. James says, that passage they quoted from James, God hears the cry of those who are mistreated. He judges those who would not pay laborers who worked the fields. In 1 Timothy 1.10, lists murderers and enslavers as contrary to sound doctrine. The NIV calls them slave traders, which is what they were. So man-stealing, slave-trading, involuntary, lifelong enslaving is against God's law and gospel. We need to understand that and be able to articulate that. The law and the prophets condemn the American-style slavery as much as they condemn Hamas-style kidnapping. It was in the same category. Listen to Amos 1.6. The Lord says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. And it goes on to talk about Tyre also sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. One version says they sold whole villages as slaves. And Amos 2.6 rebukes even those of Israel who sell the righteous for silver. So this is what was happening in the times of the prophets. And remember, that's what Joseph's brothers did. They took him away and they sold him to slave traders as an innocent man for pieces of silver. God is saying, you must never do that. And that was in Old Testament times, but to the end times, Revelation 18 says, Judgment will fall on cargoes of goods and slaves, that is, human souls, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. All of that is building on what Exodus 21, 16 forbids, the, the selling of, of human souls. What happened to Joseph was a great evil that Israel was not to repeat, to steal or sell human beings against their will, which still happens today, was severely condemned by God's law. Modern African slave trading was not allowed by God. His word is loud and clear against it. And there are many people stolen today and sold illegally today as well that God hears those cries. And we need to be concerned about any trafficking in our world today. But we need to start and clearly say this condemns American slavery. But then we need to look at this passage and see how it cares for all people and calls us to. In Exodus 21, verse 2, the idea of people being bought or purchased was to be done with care. And it would include caring for their needs, taking them in to live as a part of your household. And this term for being bought, they actually had just sung this weeks earlier. When they came through the Red Sea, they sung of how God, Exodus 15, 16, God had purchased them. He had delivered them. He had just bought them. He had delivered them. The idea there of that word is he's redeemed them. He's rescued them from a bad situation. 
And he's brought them to a new master, Israel, at the Red Sea, coming out of Egypt. They had no resources to get themselves out of Egypt. They had no way that they could avoid death at the sea as that army is coming in. But God bought them is the term. He brought Israel to serve him. And then he is telling them, you need to reflect that with others as well. When your fellow countrymen get into a bad situation and they have no resources You who have means can step in to help them, help them to avoid debt. That was a real common way where there was a great debt they had to pay off or even death. And even if it was a great debt that would take years to pay off, they weren't to work more than those six years. But this is something that had already existed before Exodus. God is not creating or condoning even that system, he, he's not, he didn't create debt, he didn't create divorce either as his ideals, but his law cares for people who are in those situations and sometimes not by their choice. And those who are poor, Deuteronomy 15.11. Let's read this out loud together. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. This is where we've got to look at the principles, even though those particulars aren't things that we have in our society. There's a principle here is that we need to be generous. We need to care for others. And we need to do what we can to help them in their difficult situations. He says in verse 10 of that chapter, give generously. We're called to be giving people. And think about this, even as the the slaves left Egypt in the Exodus, the Egyptians liberally, generously gave to them what they asked as Israel was sent away from being slaves. He's telling them, when when someone has been serving you, you you need to bless them as God has blessed you as you send him away. The Bible isn't pro slavery. I mean, the the chapter right before this, Exodus 20, he begins this whole section saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. He's, He's the God who's bringing them out of that kind of slavery that was chattel slavery in Egypt. And when verse 2 of chapter 21 talks about letting him go free, he says, he shall go out free for nothing. And that's the Hebrew root word for grace. It's also similar in in Latin, gratis, free, and gratia, grace. It's it's kindness or or favor that's that's to the helpless. It's unmerited. This isn't harsh law. This is providing a way for free grace for someone else to pay your way to get you out of that situation. And then the ideal was with stability now and patterns of responsibility in that time after their service, they could reintegrate into a free society and not continue the cycle that got them into poverty in the first place. And so God is not commending slavery itself as an institution. He's commanding liberation after work and kindness in the process And that includes, in verse 3, whatever family he had as he began his contract went free when he's free. But then we get to verse 4. And at first reading, it doesn't sound 
like the gracious, caring God we've been hearing about in Exodus. It's actually kind of confusing. Verse 4, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her husband shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. You think, what is that? Well, I think the simplest way to look at that is if their six years aren't up yet, they're still under contract. There's still work for them to do. Think of the example if she's served X amount of years, less than her contract, and now she's married to a guy who's about to get out. What this is saying is she's not automatically done when he is. But a master wasn't to keep them working beyond the contract. They would be free eventually, and there were ways in other scriptures that could show how he could continue to choose to serve with them as well. Maybe an analogy that would help us go back to the U.S. Army analogy. Someone who's signed up and the army is, in essence, his master. If he marries a fellow soldier who's also got a commitment of X amount of years, but he's about to get released from his commitment, she's not automatically able to leave the, the army when he does. But he could choose to continue to serve, even though he's not contractually bound to, to continue to serve in a place where he could be with his wife But the army still has a claim on her contract till her years are up. Sometimes there's also a deployment to serve before reuniting. And and these are not ideal situations, but they're part of the deal. But here's how verse 5 addresses that situation. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free. And we're going to look at that a little bit more a little bit later, but just notice there was a way that he could keep serving with his loved ones. And and some scholars I read think of verse 4 as a test as to whether he cared more for his family or more for his freedom at the first chance he got. He could choose to still serve with them because he loved his wife more than his life being free of that at his earliest opportunity. Or Leviticus 25 suggests he could work to redeem his family. And in some cases, he might have learned skills in those six years, kind of like an apprenticeship. And now he's able to to work to provide in ways he couldn't before. Or godly family or community could step in. Think of the story of Ruth and the destitution that Naomi and her family was in. And then Boaz comes in to redeem and to help them from not losing everything. Or a master could pardon a debt before it was paid. And I think Jesus is thinking of this when he brings up debt slavery in New Testament times to make this point. There was a parable he told of a man who did not have means to repay, and it says the Lord commanded, this is the master, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So he's got this massive debt that he can't pay. He could never pay it off in six years. It's a massive debt. He has no means to repay it, and so he's sold with his family And it says, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And then the Lord, the master of that slave, felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. And then Jesus applies that. We need to have that same heart. We need to realize what a massive debt we owe God for our sin. We need to be forgiving of others. And he goes on to say, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way 
that I had mercy on you. And that, that picture kind of fills out what Jesus taught us to pray, doesn't it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that can apply to spiritual debts as well. But this is the, the whole background of stuff like that, that we would be gracious, forgiving. He's, he's urging people to be merciful and to be gracious and to not always exact what they could, but to be forgiving and especially thinking about how much we've sinned against God, how he's forgiven us. How can we not forgive others? Now, what about verse 7 of chapter 21? When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And again, this is confusing, but there's also a a caring note here with the language to treat her like you would your own daughter. Make sure she's cared for. And she is treated different than male slaves in the sense of giving extra care, extra protection, extra provision to redeem or to release even without any redemption payment. This is not God's will, will or ideal. He's describing a situation that sometimes happen. A second marriage or selling kids, neither of those things were what God set up in the beginning. But what this is addressing is if or when men did that, God cared for those affected. Just think of some of the stories in Genesis of of marriages and and sometimes there was another wife or there was a slave involved and children involved and it just gets so complicated and messy and and this is so far away from our culture i mean we don't do arranged marriages we don't have dowry payments we don't typically designate people to marry be married maybe some of your parents would like to but you know there's no christmas hallmark movies with this kind of plot here with this kind of family situation. But this was a culture where there was betrothal and big bride investments that a family in poverty might need early. Marriage had a price paid in ancient times. Again, that wasn't laid down as as a command from God, but right or wrong, her dad received it and her dad could negotiate it. I think about Mary and Joseph even being betrothed. We might think of it kind of romantic, but it, it had this could have had some of that dynamic here. And this would not be, like in most cases, you wouldn't get your inheritance early. You think of the son wanting his inheritance early in the prodigal son story. That's not a normal or ideal thing. But in desperation or destitution, some would seek early payment for a daughter's hand in marriage. And when that would happen, again, it's not saying that that should happen, but if, if that were to happen and the guy were to break faith and not care for her, she was to be redeemed. She was to be released from that situation. Verse 8, the New American Standard says, because of his unfairness to her, the man forfeited any right or authority with her if he didn't treat her right and fair with care. And the term in verse 7 isn't demeaning. 
In fact, the Hebrew term maidservant is how many of the the godly women referred to themselves. Ruth spoke of herself with this same term when she was asking for marital covering from Boaz. She said, would you do this for your maidservant? Asking to be covered by, by someone who could care for her in a, a desperate situation. So a scholar explains, probably prompted by a financial crisis within the family, the money comes in lieu of the betrothal present normally given her dad at the time of his daughter's marriage. A dowry may be not possible in a time of poverty. This arrangement would benefit a family in debt, but the rulings here are to safeguard the position of the girl who had lost the normal security and protection of her family in this process. So verse 9 reveals she must be treated according to the rulings of daughters. She was to be viewed as having a status well above that of an ordinary slave and treated with the respect due to every free woman within Israelite society of her time. And she was also allowed to go if the situation was bad. Verse 11 clarifies what action is to be taken against any breaking of these rules. The girl is to go free. So first there were rights of daughter and then there were rights of of marital rights, which could be translated to provide, to take care of, attend to the needs of care, concern, her, her upkeep. And if there's another woman involved, which again is not God's ideal, he must care for all of her needs or she is free. Think of a, a practical example of Abraham with Hagar. I mean, that gives it kind of a real-life story. Abraham with Hagar now has this son, Ishmael, but she's being mistreated and then she actually is released and sent away. But, but, but really, that scenario should, should not have happened. That wasn't God's ideal. And I don't even think Abraham is really caring for her. He just sends her a flask of water, but she almost dies on the way. But Genesis 1 through 2 is God's ideal and God's will. One man, one woman for life. And sin messes that up in, in the Abraham story. And then with Isaac and, and Jacob, certainly that was messed up, and his, his working, his contract working for Laban, and how that all got messed up as well. But God, in his care, as they knew all those stories from his history, he's talking about what to do in those unfortunate situations, whether there's neglect or abuse, other women involved. God speaks in Exodus to correct what went badly in Genesis and to protect those in bad situations. And, and just think the whole context of, of chapter 21. If you keep reading, it's going to talk about killing. It's going to talk about cursing parents. It's going to talk about hitting pregnant women. All these things that it's describing here are not good situations. We don't want to conclude that this is good. Everything else, everything else is not good. No, these are describing situations that are not good and what God's people are to do in their society. When that happened, God is not pro-slavery any more than he is pro-hitting pregnant women or killing or cursing parents. He cares for all. He calls us to care in these messy situations. And God in his law shows his care for women. And he shows us here that we need to care for others. We need to care especially for those in difficult situations is the principle. We need to think of those in our life who are suffering and struggling who we can reflect God's care for. And we see in this passage also God's good law protects women from bad men. And it's designed to keep providing their needs. 
And it was God's law alone and all of the other ancient laws that did this. And there's, there's no other ancient law codes they found that would even give slaves or servants a day off for rest or worship. But that's right there in the Ten Commandments. Every seventh day, and I think even the seventh year principle is, is to give relief as well. Slaves were last and least in all the other ancient law codes. In fact, many of them that give rights to people don't even list slaves at all. Don't even give them any rights Or in the laws of Hammurabi, slaves are at the very end. But here in God's law, it's at the very start. And I think because God has a special concern for those that in society were not always treated right. God is putting their rights first in a world with no slave rights to care for those the world didn't. And that's a lesson for his people. And in fact, chapter 21, verse 26 and 27 uses the same Hebrew word as verse 7. If a slave maidservant is abused, God's law was to set her free. If she was beaten or in a bad situation, she also had the option to flee to others for refuge. So one other passage to look at in Deuteronomy. That's the passage from, from Jesus about having mercy. But God's law to protect fleeing bad masters, Deuteronomy 23, 15. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes and in whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. Again, this is radically different than ancient laws and even laws in the south of this country not that long ago. The codes of Hammurabi actually demanded capital punishment. If you enabled a slave, if you helped a slave escape, or you harbored a slave, you got the death penalty as well. God, in his good law, actually makes that a compassionate duty to help. And he provided a way for any slave to get out of a bad situation with full support of God's people. But there are refugees today. There's people needing refuge and safety today as well. And I pray that our church will always be a safe place for people like that, for any who are abused or misused, for any who might be in a difficult situation, or maybe you're pregnant and there's no man stepping up to do what God's law called them to, or you're a single mom, or or just suffering, struggling in, in difficult situations. We want this to be a place where we are caring for you. And I pray maybe even some in our midst would be used in some way to help rescue trafficked girls today's slave trade. And I pray that all of us would be thinking about it, maybe even now, thinking about what are some ways, even in this holiday season, that I can show care for those who are struggling. May we all pursue that more. And that takes us to number three, because this is what God has done for us in redemption. The main point of this whole section I need to end with is, is actually freeing. It's redeeming. It's going out. Verbs, those verbs are used eight times, whereas the, the verb for a male slave is used twice and then a, a female slave as well. This is a book and this passage is about liberation. It's, it's about redemption. That's the whole story of Exodus. It's about God paying to buy back. And, and not only that, in Exodus 4, he calls the slaves of Israel, my son. He says, let my son go to, to serve me. And, and look in Exodus 21, verse 9, how a master was to treat 
a slave as a, as a child. But go back to verse 5 again, that picture. If a slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife and my children, I will not go out free then. His master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. So they would come to the door. They'd come to the door frame. And the, the ear would be nailed through. There, there would be a hole now. There would be blood now at, at that door. I don't know if it was exactly nailed to the door or just done at the door as the entryway. Because this is where the, the, the master lived. But remember when God was redeeming Israel at the Passover... Remember, there was blood, right? There was blood at the, the doorpost. And, and I think there's a, a hint of this as well, a, a, a covenant, just like God was doing with them. And this is ultimately pointing us forward to the coming Redeemer, pointing us to the Lamb of God, not the Lamb slain back in Israel at their doorpost, but the Lamb of God who would be slain, who would be nailed to a cross of wood, and His blood would be what would redeem His people. And the Old Testament picks up on this. In Isaiah, it uses this same word from Exodus, slave or, or ebed, to prophesy Jesus. He would be the ebed Yahweh. He would be the bondservant of the Lord. And he would voluntarily, temporarily take on the very form of a human slave. That's what Philippians 2 says. He took on the form of a, of a slave under his heavenly Lord, to do his work. It was all about him. He says, I'm only doing what, the, what, what God would tell me to do. And Jesus plainly spoke of his love, didn't he, for God as his master. And he spoke of his love for his family, his, his brothers and his sisters that he was redeeming. The church is his bride. The church is his bride. Think of this picture that is rejected by the world and yet is redeemed by him. The world rejects the, the bride of Christ, but he redeems them and brings them in. He also, to his father, uses this language, the children that you have given me. That's language that sounds very much like children given in Exodus. He, he speaks of us as children he has been given. Think of this. Jesus was sold. He was sold by Judas, and it was the price of a slave. It was the number of pieces of silver of a slave. Jesus died as a slave. He died the, the death of a slave on a cross. And he is the model of loving obedience to the master. Loving family that, that, that we don't want to be free of. I mean, that should be true of us. We don't want to be free of our family here. I can tell you, Jesus is my master forever. Wherever I can say with Peter, where else am I going to go, Lord, Master? You have the words of eternal life. That's what Jesus told Peter. Do you want to go? Do you want to go away like the rest of them? He says, where am I going to go? Where else am I going to go? I want to be with you. You have the words of life. For us, Jesus is not just at the door calling us to come. He is the door. You have to enter through him to be saved. He actually brings us to God. He actually bore our debt of sin to a cross. Hallelujah. What a savior we have. And I, I need to ask you, can you plainly say, I love my master. Do you want to serve as his slave 
forever. Not just as his servant, but to be his bondslave. You know the risen Lord still has the marks of the nail prints, and the holes where he was pierced through his hands in heaven still, even as the risen Lord appeared to his disciples in that way, he's calling us. He's calling us to come to him. If you don't yet love him, come to him. Come to him. Confess him as your Lord, which means master. Trust that we had a debt we could not pay. And Jesus came and paid a debt he did not owe to free us and to forgive us so we can be freed of sin, and we can be free to forgive others as well. We had no resources on our own. We would have died unless he stepped in and agreed to provide all our needs. He pays our way, and then he takes us to stay with him. What a Savior. And not just live with us for a few years, but to live with us forever. So at Christmas... Think of Christ coming into this world among the poor, the homeless, the hopeless. Long lay the world in sin and errors of slavery and all kinds of other errors that mark the ancient world. But in the darkness of that world and even the darkness before the Civil War, there was a man named John Dwight who put to music, it was written in French originally, a Christmas classic on Christ as the answer to slavery. It's called O Holy Night. We're going to sing it here in a moment. And it talks about when he appeared, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Listen to this line. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. He knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. Behold your king. Before him, lowly bend. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and sing to him. Our great and gracious God, our master, our king. Lord, help us as your subjects, as your lowly bond slaves. Even as Mary, as she heard about the Christmas story, she said, Behold, I am the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be according to your will. Lord, help us to have that heart, but also help us to have the heart of our merciful master. To care, to be moved to care. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.